Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. I've been afflicted with scratchy throat, raspy voice syndrome. And so uh, I hope you can bear with me today. Pastor Claude is waiting in the wings. Should I conk out in the middle of this sermon? <laughs> and in any event, he's going to be reading our scriptures today, kind of like a voice coming out of, from heaven, okay? So be ready for that. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today. I mean, we're going to go to a whole nother level today, all right? So I hope you're ready for that. You can take the uh, light, fluffy sermon outline out of your worship folder. And uh, I just, I hope you're alert and ready to go, and <clears throat> I'll do my best. Well, you know, I'm, I'm now 53 years old, and uh, that used to sound really old to me. Now it sounds relatively young, actually. <laughs> I uh, grew up, came of age in Southern California in the 60s and 70s, which was kind of a, a wild place to be during that time. And uh, many of you know that out of the counterculture of those days came the Jesus movement. You guys remember that? Uh, thousands of hippies were getting off LSD and getting high on Jesus instead. And then uh, showing up, many of them in traditional churches with bare feet, tie-dyed t-shirts, bell-bottom jeans, living Bibles, and uh, the stodgy old deacons in those churches did not know what to do with those young people. There were mass baptisms in the Pacific Ocean, uh, Christian communes were springing up all over the place, and there was some new music, Jesus music, and along with all of that was a renewed interest in Bible prophecy and the end times. It was in 1970 that uh, a man named Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And just researching it, I found out that was the actual best-selling book of that decade uh, of its kind. And many, many uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people read that book. It predicted the soon return of Jesus Christ. And with it, end times fever started to spread like wildfire. A couple years later, the movie Thief in the Night came out, 1972. I don't know how many of you saw that, but um, if you did, the subtitle should have been Run, Patty, Run, because that's what was going on for most of that movie. Patty was running from the authorities. <laughs> I remember my church showed that movie on a Sunday night, and it scared the living daylights out of people. Many people prayed to receive Jesus just to avoid the threat of the tribulation period. I also remember our church started singing a song that felt like a really anointed song at the time. Uh, the King is coming. The King is coming, praise God. He's coming for me and our people in our little church were getting excited. Uh, my mom went out and bought me this novel by Salem Kirbin called 666, and I still have it. And uh, I remember as a teenager reading it and getting chills up my spine as I read about the rapture and the beast and the mark of the beast and the end times. Late, late in the 70s, I went off to Bible college, and a couple of my professors there were actually some of the most well-renowned experts on Bible prophecy in the world at the time. Dr. Ed Heinsohn, Dr. Harold Wilmington, I had classes with each of them. And they each taught the same pre-tribulation view of the rapture that I had learned in my church growing up and that I had seen depicted in that film, Thief in the Night. 
I was a student, so I decided to do some studying on my own. And uh, as I did, I, I felt confirmed in my viewpoint on that. And later, when a group of us uh, moved to a place called Columbus, Ohio, to start this church together, we included in our statement of faith the perspective that we had been taught. And uh, I actually put on your outline there our um, statement of eschatology, which means last things or the end days. And I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but about a third of the way down, it says, we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Pre-trib for short, shorthand. <laughs> that view takes the position that Jesus coming return to earth is going to take place in two stages. First, prior to the tribulation period, Jesus is going to come and he's going to catch his people up to be with him, to meet him in the clouds. It's called the rapture. Seven years later, a second coming, this time with his people, with his saints, coming all the way down to the earth to save Israel, to judge the wicked, and to set up his millennial kingdom, his kingly reign from David's throne in Jerusalem. Last weekend I told you that that is just one view among several people held by uh, Bible-believing Christians. <clears throat> Some believe that the rapture is not going to occur at the beginning of the tribulation, but in the middle point, and they're called mid-tribbers. Okay, so you got pre-tribbers, you got mid-tribbers. Sometimes those folks are called the pre-wrath group because they believe that Christians are going to get airlifted out right before God pours His cataclysmic judgment on the earth and all hell breaks loose during the final three and a half years of the tribulation period. Mid-tribbers, still others, believe the rapture will occur at the end of the tribulation and they're called post-tribbers, okay? So pre, mid, and post. And if they're right, and I hope they're not, then Christians are going to go through all of that seven-year period of tribulation and then finally be rescued by Jesus at the end, at least those who survived it. Many post-tribbers believe that the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ are going to happen at the same time, simultaneously. Believers will go up to meet Christ in the air and then they'll come down together with Christ to establish his kingdom. So if you're not confused yet, you need to know that all three of those views fit under the umbrella of what's called premillennialism. In other words, it's an intramural debate among those who believe that Jesus is going to come back before his millennial kingdom reign, his thousand-year reign on the earth. But you should know there is also the amillennial view. These people are convinced that the reign of Christ spoken of in Revelation 19 is not a literal millennium and it's not a literal thousand years. But rather, Christ's kingdom will be a spiritual kingdom that will endure for a period of time, an unspecified length of time, and in fact is happening, many of them believe, right now, that we're living in the kingdom age right now, and Jesus is reigning from heaven through his church and spreading his influence throughout the world. That's the amillennial view. And then there is the postmillennial view, which is similar in being optimistic about the, the church's growing influence in the world, but contends that there is a literal earthly kingdom that will be established, but that Jesus is going to administer it from heaven, not from earth, not from Jerusalem. And then he'll come back at some point to judge the wicked nations who have not submitted to his rule. 
If you're still not confused, then for the most part, you need to know all of these views fall under an even bigger umbrella called the futurist camp. And futurists believe that all these things are yet still to happen. They haven't happened yet. They're coming. But you need to realize there's a whole other umbrella called the preterist position, which contends that much of this apocalypse talk is basically nonsense because the end times signs and events prophesied in the Bible have for the most part already happened. And there are some very notable people who hold that view. And that may sound strange to some of you who are futurists, but the preterists have been around for a long, long time. And they say that Jesus and the New Testament writers were mostly prophesying about events that would take place in their lifetime. That the generation who was living and hearing Jesus speak these words, would see these things come to pass. They believe that what happened 40 years later, in 70 A.D., when the Romans came in and basically wiped out Jerusalem, obliterated the temple, and massacred 1.1 million Jews, the first Holocaust, really, they believe that that event was the fulfillment of the end times prophecies judgment that Jesus gave. So preterists believe that the day of the Lord and Christ's return to judge have already happened. Most of them do believe there's still a yet future coming of Christ to the earth, but they tend to dismiss all the hype about people being left behind and going through the tribulation and all that. In their view, that already happened. Then, there are those who believe that while some of those signs were certainly fulfilled in 70 A.D., that there were other prophetic signs that were more global in scale and don't seem to fit that event of what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans and therefore still awaits a future fulfillment, dual fulfillment. These people contend that the Bible often presents prophecy as having both a near and a far element. A telescopic view that does see partial fulfillment in the first century but looks beyond that to a final global fulfillment in the end times. And there's a lot of examples of dual fulfillment in the Bible. And in fact, the Old Testament prophets, you think about just the, the predictions about Messiah, um, they, were, you know, they had a view of his suffering and his glory as being one and the same, happening simultaneously together. We now, in 2014, look back and realize, well, there was a huge gap between sufferings of Messiah and glory of Messiah, right? Does that make sense? So, this does find its place in Scripture. Now, no wonder people get all confused about prophecy. I mean, we were in our small group last week talking about this, and the question was, how does the return of Christ make you feel? And the people in the group mostly said, you know, I'm excited to see Jesus, but I'm very confused about how it's all going to unfold. And uh, there is a lot of confusion. So maybe you're sitting here today and saying, well, Steve, what are you? Where do you land? Well, currently, as of 11.33 this morning, I'm a dual fulfillment, premillennial, pre-tribulationist. But I'm not super dogmatic about it, and I admit that I could be wrong. In fact, if I'm still around on the earth when certain events happen, I'll change my eschatology like that. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Last week, I said, I think every Christian needs to study this for themselves and arrive at their, their own conclusions, their own viewpoints regarding this. 
but then resist coming on too strong with others. As I said last week, this is not a cardinal doctrine of Orthodox Christianity. I mean, the return of Jesus is that he's coming, but not the order of all of the events. This is not something to go to the map for. This is not something to separate over and divide over and split churches and all that kind of stuff. I mean, in our church, even on our staff, our ministry staff, we have a variety of views when it comes to this matter of the sequence and order of end times events. What I want you to keep in mind as I talk this morning is this. Jesus promised to come back. He's coming back. Maybe soon. I hope it's soon. It may be 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now. We don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. Godly scholars hold all of the views that I kind of cataloged for you earlier. Today, what I want to do is um, have us look at several important end times events spoken of in the Bible. My desire is to point you to some key Bible passages and give you some background and context so you can come up with your own conclusion about this. So first, we're going to talk about this event called the rapture of the church. Pastor Claude is going to read a key passage for you regarding that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. Well, that is the most detailed passage in the Bible on the event that many people call the rapture. Now, you need to know the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's like the word Trinity. It's not found in the Bible. It comes from a Latin word which means to, to snatch up or to catch up or take away. And that really is what is described in verse 17, that those who are alive, it says, will be caught up, raptured in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I want you to notice some uh, important features of this event which is very highly anticipated and also controversial. Verse 13 tells us that there were some Christians in that church, the th church at Thessalonica, who were worried about the fate of loved ones who had died. And we understand that, right? What happened to my, my grandma, my grandpa, my parents, or whatever, who knew the Lord but have gone, gone on, passed on from this life? They were worried about that. In verse 14, Paul offers some solid Christian hope for the future that's rooted and grounded in the truth of the gospel. Verse 14, he says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, based on the gospel truths of Christ, Paul gives hope. In verses 14 and 16, Paul declares that God had revealed to him that deceased believers will be raised one day. Aren't you glad of that? 
I will see my grandma again. I will see my grandpa again. I'm looking forward to that day. Verse 15 tells us that there's going to be a generation of Christians who will not die. I want to be in that group. (laughs) Who won't die, who will be alive when Christ returns for them. Verse 16 and 17 tells us that at the appointed time in God's plan, in in a loudly announced moment, Jesus himself will come down from heaven, will raise the bodies of dead saints, then snatch away the living remnant of his people from the earth to meet him in the air to be with him forever. Aren't you glad of that? We will always be with our Lord, it says. What a great promise of the gospel. And then verse 18, this teaching, this teaching on the rapture was meant to be a message of comfort to the believers who hear it. One reason I'm a pre-tribber is because of the comfort passages like this one that present the rapture as a future event that should encourage us. Now, if I've got to go through all of the devastations of the tribulation, I'm not too encouraged, at least for me, okay? So that's one reason because of these comfort passages that I do land there in my own views. Now, the teaching of the rapture, at least in the mind of futurists, means that when Jesus comes back for his people, there will be many people who will be what? Left behind. That's right, on the earth. What will they face? What will people face who are not caught up to be with our Lord? Well, the next chapter tells us about that. Paul continues this theme. Um, chapter 5 of First Thessalonians, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Well, this passage speaks of the day of the Lord. It's not a literal 24-hour period of time, but it's, it's a season. It's a phrase used to describe that season of human history when God will pour out his ultimate, final, cataclysmic judgment upon the earth and upon the wicked. And that is what Paul says unbelievers will face on the earth after the rapture of God's people. Notice a few aspects of the day of the Lord and what the response of Christians should be in in knowing about it. Verse 2 and 3 tells us that it's going to come suddenly. Suddenly. 
an unexpected, unanticipated catastrophe coming upon the earth. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that true Christians are not going to be surprised by it. They'll, they'll see the signs that it's growing nearer. Verses 6 through 8 says that Christians should be alert and serious-minded in light of it. Verse 9 tells us that Christians are not destined to experience the wrath of God that's going to be poured out during the day of the Lord, but instead will be delivered from it. That's what salvation means there. Jesus will deliver his people from it. Verse, uh, verse 10 tells us that both living and deceased believers will escape this and will live with Christ. And again, verse 11 tells us that these are meant to be encouraging words that build other believers up in their faith. And so, again, for me, great encouragement comes from my being convinced that true Christians will not be around when this day of disaster hits. The more I learn about God's coming judgment of the wicked, the more I'm glad that I'm cloaked and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that was not my own doing. I simply trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus for me on the cross when he took all of my sins upon himself and then gave me his righteousness. So Martin Luther called it the great exchange. I give Jesus my sin and I receive his perfect holy record of perfection and righteousness when I stand before God. That's a pretty good trade-off, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Jesus did that for us. And so I'm cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. I don't believe I'm going to experience the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on the earth in punishment of the wicked. Now, in his follow-up letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Paul picks up this same theme of the last days and the end times, and, he, and in it he gives the most detailed description in the Bible of a key end times figure known as the Antichrist. You cannot study prophecy without having your attention directed to this powerful world ruler who is to come. The occasion for this letter was that Paul had learned that some people in the church were worried that they had missed the rapture, like Patty in Thief in the Night, and that they were now in the tribulation, they were now in the day of the Lord. So let's listen to what he, what he wrote them. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So we can surmise, we can surmise, that soon after they had received Paul's first letter, someone had apparently come into this church with a second letter in hand, supposedly from Paul as well, telling them that, the persecution they were experiencing as a church was a sign that they were in the tribulation period. They were experiencing the day of the Lord that they had missed the rapture, and so they were understandably shook up and alarmed. Oh no, oh no, we missed it. But it was a counterfeit letter. It was a forged letter. That's why at the end of 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, Note my signature. Here's how I write my name when I write letters to prevent something like this from happening again. And so Paul sets the record straight. He's going to set it straight regarding God's end times time frame. So pick it up in verse 3. 
Let no one let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So Paul basically says, Do not be deceived, Thessalonians, about the sequence of certain events in God's plan. He says, I taught you about this when I was with you. You haven't missed the rapture. You're not in the day of the Lord. God has revealed that in his plan, something must happen first before those things will occur, and that thing has not happened. Let's learn from this passage several things. Verse 3 tells us that before the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus, there's going to be a rebellion. Do you see that? A mass defection. It's going to work like this. People who would claim to be Christians, would claim to know the Lord. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I go to church. When it starts to cost them something to be a Christian, they're going to say, this is not what I signed up for. I'm out of here. They're going to defect and actually reveal their true condition of their hearts. The apostasy, it's called, or the rebellion. Then, verse 3, the man of lawlessness will make his appearance before the day of the Lord will come. Do you see that? Before, he will come, before it will come, this end times world ruler must appear on the world stage. Third, this son of destruction, another title. So is this a great fella? Man of lawlessness, son of destruction. <laughs> Tells us something about him. He is going to declare himself to be God. He's going to take his seat in the temple. I take this to mean the temple, God's temple in Jerusalem. And he's going to demand to be worshipped. He's going to say, I am God in the flesh. I'm the second coming of God. Worship me. Verse 6 and 7 tell us that something is currently restraining his appearance. He can't come yet. Because something is holding him back, but one day that restraint is going to be removed, at which time he will be revealed. He will appear on the world stage, as it were. My belief, with my pre-tribulational view, is that what's going to be removed is, is the spirit-filled church of Jesus. It's going to be removed out of the way, and then that will usher in that new epoch in God's time, time frame where this man will be revealed. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that this man will be empowered by Satan. So not demon-possessed, but Satan-possessed. And you know that Satan has power. He's been given 
a measure of power. And so this man's going to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. Don't make the mistake of thinking whenever you hear about signs and wonders that that is of God. There will be a time when this individual will perform great things, probably helpful things, and he's going to deceive many because he's not God, even though he will claim that he is God in the flesh. Verse 8 tells us that at some point after he appears on the scene, he's going to be destroyed by Jesus at Jesus' second coming. It says Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. Like, or a word, a word from Jesus' mouth will take out this extremely powerful world ruler, which tells me that Jesus is much more powerful than he is. That's my Lord, that's my Savior. And then again, verses 1 and 2 tell us that, that knowing the sequence of these events should have the effect of relieving Christians' anxiety and alarm. Those first century believers could be assured that the rapture had not yet come and they were not in the day of the Lord's judgment because this man of lawlessness, whom I believe to be the Antichrist, had not yet made his appearance. Now, this... Powerful world ruler is described in other places in the Bible. 1 John 2.18 says, You know that Antichrist is coming. Daniel 7 and Daniel 11 describe him in detail. But I want us to look at Revelation 13, where he is famously called the beast. Pastor Claude's going to read this whole chapter for us. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, and his throne, and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a, had a fateful wound, but the fateful wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, 
rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number. His number is 666. And I say, whoa. <laughs> Speaks of a very extremely powerful and deceptive man who's going to come on the scene, the beast. I believe it's the same guy. The man of lawlessness, the antichrist, the son of destruction, the ruler who will come, the beast. I believe it's all speaking about the same person. He's going to be proud and blasphemous. If you take it literally here, it appears that he's going to suffer a fatal wound but be raised back to life and the world is going to be astonished at that and give him their undivided allegiance and devotion. It says his ruling authority is going to be exercised most visibly during a 42-month period. Very specific, three and a half years. In Revelation 12.6, it's spoken of as 1,260 days. Same thing. In the book of Daniel, it's referred to as times, time, and time and a half. Three and a half years. Many futurists place this time frame in the last half of the seven-year tribulation period and call it the Great Tribulation. During the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will be given supreme authority over all the people of the earth, including Jews, including Christians, new Christians. Yes, there will be people who will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. It will cost them dearly. Most of them, it will cost them their lives. Antichrist will be set against them. He will blaspheme the one true God. He will torture and kill God's people. He's going to be able to perform amazing signs. He's going to have a cohort. We read another beast, right? often referred to as the false prophet who will erect an image of the Antichrist, somehow cause that image to be animated and demand the world's complete devotion to Antichrist. And note this, the beast is going to exercise full economic control over the entire world, probably using technology to require and ensure total allegiance to him and to his regime. A mark of some kind is going to be required to complete any and all financial transactions, including selling goods and services and buying food to survive. Now, when I wrote a paper on this tw 35 years ago, this kind of sounded outlandish. It doesn't sound so outlandish to me anymore. It sounds more like yesterday's news <laughs> with the processing of digital transactions and smart cards and embedded chips and all those things. It's, it's already happening, right? I mean, this is... We do not look at this and go, whoa, that could never happen. No, we go, whoa, that's happening right now. The monitoring of digitized financial transactions in order to be able to control them, to approve or reject them. This is not fantasy to us. The market says will be his name or his number, which is man's number 666. Now, a preterist would look at that and say, yeah, I believe that the Antichrist was Nero. 
the emperor of Rome from A.D. 54 to A.D. 68. And he was a monstrous person, a monstrous emperor. He uh, lit up his courtyard by capturing Christians, covering them in tar, and lighting them on fire. Um, he was a wicked, evil man and certainly prefigured the end times Antichrist. His number was 666. If you take the numeric value of the Hebrew letters of Nero's name and add them together, it came, came up to 666. That was known in his day. And so the preterist would say, this man has already made his appearance on the scene. But when I look at this account in Revelation 13, I, one reason I'm a futurist is that it doesn't seem to take into account everything that we see here. There seems to me to be at least parts of this that haven't taken place yet. One of the most amazing prophecies about Antichrist, and one that includes several very interesting time frame references, is recorded in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And Daniel chapter 9 is the very first place in the Bible that we're introduced to something that sounds very ominous because it is. The King James Version called it the abomination of desolation. Listen to this portion of Daniel's prophecy. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Did you get all that? You're thinking, am I in math class today or am I in church? <laughs> well, I wish I could get into this in depth, uh, but I can't. You're going to need to study it on your own. Um, I am recommending, um, not this book, but this one <laughs> by John MacArthur called The Second Coming, Signs of Christ's Return and the End of the Age. And he goes into this Daniel 9 passage in depth. The prophecies here are amazingly precise. Daniel's vision talks about the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That happened in 444 B.C. by issue of order of the Persian king Artaxerxes. It says there's going to be seven sevens. Now those sevens are weeks of years, not weeks of days. There's going to be seven sevens and there's going to be 62 sevens. And when you add that up, that's 483 years. If you go from 444 B.C. and add 483 years to it precisely, it's the day that Jesus, the anointed one, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Precise. But what I want you to see is that there's a week of years here that's dangling. 
You've heard of dangling modifiers, right? Here's a dangling week of seven years. There's seven weeks and 62 weeks. That equals 69, but he said 70. Where's that last week? Well, many people, many scholars associate Daniel's 70th week with the seven-year tribulation period, with the final 42 months or three and a half years being referred to as the Great Tribulation, as I mentioned earlier. You say, well, how will we know when that seven years begins? Well, in verse 27, it says it's going to begin with a covenant or a treaty negotiated by this ruler who will come, this antichrist, this man of lawlessness. Some scholars believe that this is going to be a peace treaty involving Israel. <laughs> now, that's been in the works for how long? Decades, right? And every single attempt has led to what? Disappointment. <laughs> Didn't happen. Well, this guy is going to be so cunning, such a great negotiator, he's going to have so much support that he's going to be able to negotiate this treaty that's going to protect Israel, and everybody's going to go, wow, what a leader. What a leader this man is. The language here also indicates that in addition to this covenant or treaty, Jewish temple worship is going to be reinstated at some point in a newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, complete with animal sacrifices being offered on the altar, just like in Bible times. Now that's something that hasn't happened since 70 A.D. when the second temple, Herod's temple, was leveled, was wiped out by the Romans. Sacrifices haven't been offered. This Daniel prophecy indicates that the temple is going to be rebuilt and sacrifices are going to be offered again. Now, is that some outlandish notion that no one's ever thought of? Now, you can look this up. I mean, there are, there's a movement afoot to rebuild a, a third version of a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. We know there's Muslim mosques there. We know there's going to be some opposition to that, but there is a movement afoot to do that. The funding is there. They're already training the priests and rabbis. They already have the implements for altar sacrifice prepared and ready to go. It's not some crazy outlandish thing. You can research it for yourself. It's revealed to Daniel that at the midpoint of the seven years, the ruler who is to come who I believe is the Antichrist, will suddenly terminate these sacrifices and will commit a heinous, blasphemous breach of protocol right there in the temple in Jerusalem, perhaps even slaughtering a pig on the altar, just like the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes did in 168 B.C., another prefiguring of Antichrist. He'll do that or something, some other wicked, heinous act. So, after three and a half years of winning people over with his charm, with his magnetic personality and engaging personality and promises of peace, the man of lawlessness will start to really show his true colors after the midpoint of the tribulation and mayhem is going to result the next 42 months. The wrath of Antichrist against Jesus and Jews and Christians is going to be compounded with God's own wrath and judgment being poured out on the wicked of the earth. Listen, if you needed yet another reason to trust your life to Jesus Christ now, how about this? I'd like to miss all of this. <laughs> In verse 27 it says, 
then the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And we already saw that, didn't we? Jesus killing him with the breath of his mouth when Jesus comes at his second coming. Centuries after Daniel, Jesus himself would refer back to this prophecy in his Olivet Discourse. Listen to his words. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. So Jesus is saying, if you're a Jew living in Israel at that time, and you're watching CNN one night, the news, and you see the mighty ruler of the world suddenly reneging on his promise to protect Israel, breaking that peace treaty, if you see him standing in the temple demanding to be worshipped and desecrating it by some blasphemous act, if you're a Jew living in Jerusalem, run. Get in your car and get out of town. Don't collect your belongings. Go! Because sudden devastation is coming. And it's going to emanate outwards from Jerusalem and cover the earth. The most destructive worldwide cataclysm ever, it says. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. And a lot of bad stuff has happened. But this is going to make, it, make all those other things look like nursery school. It's only going to be shortened by the return of Christ himself. Everybody take a deep breath. Wow. The rapture, the day of the Lord, the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, Daniel's prophecies, we have covered a lot. Let's just stop there. But let me ask this. Step back for a moment, okay? Just think, what should be our response to knowing this? That Christ's return is imminent. That there is judgment coming. What should be our response? Well, the Bible's not silent. There on the back side, let me give you four things. And the first one is, wake up. Wake up. Paul wrote this in Romans 13. Do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night's nearly over. The day's almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. As I said last week, God's people need to wake up. Wake up to the reality that Jesus promised to come back and he's going to make good on that promise. So stop piddling around with sin. Start getting serious about your relationship with God. Wake up. That's what he's saying. Trust Jesus. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't know Christ, if you've never done what I talked about earlier, just giving my life to Jesus and trusting in his sacrifice for, for your sins, you know, some people think, Pastor Steve, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad the stuff is that I've done. I mean, I would be totally ashamed if it got put up on the screens. I would, I would go running out of the room. And I just want to say this to you. Jesus died to pay for all of your sins. 
all your sin and shame, all your guilt. He took it upon himself. When they were nailing into the cross, that wasn't just the execution of some upstart revolutionary in town. That was the, the execution of God as a substitute for your sins and for my sins. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's the gospel truth. And then he rose from the dead three days later. Don't, don't wait. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Today. Judgment is coming. Wrath is coming. God's patience is going to end at some point. Give your life to Jesus now. Live the remainder of your days as a lover of Christ. I mean, that's the way to live. Wake up. Wake up. Second, speak up. Speak up. Peter wrote, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some people count slowness. You know, Jesus is going to come back, really? I mean, haven't things been kind of going as they have been for thousands and thousands of years? Here's why He has delayed His return. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter says, if his return seems like it's been delayed, just know that it's because in his patience, God wants to give more people more time to repent and trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord. What a merciful God to allow time. If there's breath in your lungs today, if you're breathing, there's still time. If you have friends or family members who are still living, there's still time for them to come to Christ. Wake up. And speak up. If we'll open our eyes, we'll see that many people around us need still to get ready for His coming. And maybe God wants to use you or I to share the life-giving message of the gospel of Christ with them. So that they have their opportunity to be saved. Today I wanted to give you a spiritual conversation starter. Something you can ask people at work or friends or at school to get them thinking about this. It's, it's, it's a non-confrontational kind of a question. Here it is. Hey, bud. Hey, Mary. Have you ever heard that Jesus Christ promised to come back to earth one day? Have you ever heard that? What do you, what do you think about that? That could lead to some interesting conversations. Have you heard that Jesus Christ, the one who came as a baby, remember Christmas and all that, that he promised to come back? What do you think? We need to wake up. We need to speak up. Third, we need to show up. And you did today, and I'm grateful for that. It's a good thing. The writer of Hebrews wrote, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. These are increasingly dark days. We need the encouragement of coming together in worship and meeting together, right? You know, if, if you don't... Now, I realize I'm talking to people who are here. <laughs> all the other folks out there, listen up. <laughs> You know, if, if you don't show up, then you can't be encouraged by someone else who's here. And if you don't show up, you can't encourage that other person that God wanted you to encourage. And I'll say this from a pastor's perspective. If no one else is encouraged by your showing up, I am. <laughs> that just tells me you're, you know, 
you're here, you're with us, you love the Lord, you, 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 you're on mission with us as we seek to spread the gospel in our community and later to go into Whitehall and plant a gospel-centered congregation there and get this message out to neighboring communities. When, when you're here, it just feels like, yes, we're in this together, we're doing this together. It's a great encouragement. And this scripture tells us that we should be gathering and encouraging each other more, not less, as the day gets closer ever closer and then lastly wake up speak up show up and how about this one clean up (laughs) you're thinking yeah I need to get to the garage no I'm talking about your life (laughs) John wrote this but you know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is everyone who has this hope in him what purifies himself just as he is pure. Paul wrote, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say, No! Hey, my voice is coming back. Now I'm ready to preach. No! To ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we look for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Clean up our lives. You know, we're dabbling around in stuff, right? It's like, seriously? Clean up. It's time to get the filth out of your mind, out of your life, the immorality, the fornication, the adultery, the worldly entertainment values that you've let seep into your value system. Man, in a matter of days, maybe, or weeks, or months, or years, we don't know. Jesus, you're going to hear a trumpet sound and Jesus is going to call up to be with him and and you will be in the presence of pure holiness for the first time in your life. In that moment, you will wish and hope that you would live the life that he had called you to live. You don't want to be ashamed at his coming. You don't want to be ashamed at his coming. So get ready for that. Clean up now. Thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins. There is no sin that's so heinous, so wicked that you can't come to the Lord and say, this is me, this is who I am. Where he won't say, yeah, I died on the cross for you, for that sin. I paid for it. Here's my righteousness. It's a beautiful message of good news. Well, we'll end with that because my voice is done. <laughs> Our worship team's going to come back up and we're going to sing some songs, but I want to ask you to do this. How many of you have people in your life who don't know Christ and you're concerned about them? Okay, you can put your hands down. I'm going to invite you, just as we prepare to worship, to come, to get out of your seat and come and kneel and pray for them. Maybe you're to be, remember, speak up. Maybe God wants to use you to speak up to them, and, but you need that opportunity to open up. Just, I think that's a prayer God would want to answer. Come and plead for their soul that before the return of Christ or before they die, they make their peace with God. They believe the gospel. They become a lover of Christ. So let's take these next few moments to call out to the Lord on behalf of our friends and loved ones who don't yet know him. And then we'll sing some worship songs together.